Episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Mellon McFadden, speaking in my natural Australian accent. Unlike what Mike wanted me to do, he wanted me to do this cheesy intro and like his communist version of American English or a more Latino version, but that's not going to happen. I'm trying to get some flavor in here because people are dying listening to the same intro every time with your 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 Patrick Swayze Australian accent. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to jump in and start talking about having chippies or pushing buggies <laughs> or drinking Iron City brews. All right. So how you guys going? How you going there, Raf? I'm good, man. I'm just a little tired just trying to wake up. Um, if only though. the viewers, if only the people in podcast land had video as well as your audio, they would see a somewhat clean cut, short back and sides. The beard is very short, still patchy like little short bits of steel, I will have been welded onto his face. But uh, Raph looks about 25 or 30 years younger, which will make all Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would call this beard patchy. I think it's more like George Michael. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a 10 o'clock shadow George Michael thing I got going on. Well, oh my God. Or, or as, I would, as my people would call it, Jorge Miguel. Well, we can all dream. We can all dream. And uh, Mike, how you going, man? Uh, Nobody cares. Yeah. Well, I was good for a minute, but um, <laughs> I, I just like to point out that George Michael and Raph have one big thing in common, which uh, I will just let that sit. But uh, yeah, they look pretty similar. We we both like leather jackets. Yeah, that's it. So okay, uh, cool. Yeah. No, I'm good. Uh, pretty pretty good week. Very cold here on the East Coast. Um, <laughs> out in the water working uh, all week for a couple hours out in the ocean and uh, occasionally had feeling in my face and my hands. But uh, it was a good week overall, man. And coming back, uh, pretty good weekend, just relaxing. And um, yeah, this overall was pretty good, man. I can't complain. And how's the family doing? Pretty good. I talked to, I talked to my mom the other day and sh- she's doing really well. Um, talking about uh, some plans like Valentine's Day, like little things like that. My brother's birthday is coming up at the end of the month, turning the big four zero, getting up into your guy's bracket. He's and, getting some wisdom. Yeah, I don't know about wisdom, man. He needs some more of it, but I, I, still, <laughs> I still love him. I still love him. He's still just a big, big brother. But uh, no, so he's, he's doing that. I think he's going to come down and visit here at the end of the month and spend some time together. Um, so I'm excited. A hey, nice one. And uh, how's, how's everyone in uh, Spokane doing there? How's the bean? Is he getting chased around with tongs? Has he got hamburger patties for feet? He's, so he's currently in uh, New Orleans and he's being chased by um, my wife's twins, uh, puppy, German Shepherd. That's his new BFF. And he's hanging out with his cousins. So he's having a good time. Awesome. He'll be getting... Uh, have that... Uh, what's, what's the... Is it the beignets that they eat down there? beignets is yeah that's common there's actually a lot of food that down there that's just really good they have good food the beignets are yeah those things are off the charts and the po boys 
I'm not a big fan of the po' boys. I mean, it's just, I think it's like a sloppy, I, I probably shouldn't say that because I want some New Orleans people just coming after me, but I just, you know, it's more bread than meat. That's why I'm like, I think it's a bit overrated. Well, I love it there. I love the good people of uh, New Orleans, not like Raf. So if you're going to direct your PayPal. <laughs> I love New Orleans. I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying, I'm you know, as far as the po' boy goes, it's, all I heard know. was hate, and it's not your average <laughs> rap at gmail.com. Uh, love, love the Saints, love the city. So much fun, <laughs> love the French Quarter. <laughs> not like Raf, who hates it. Oh my God. Or Mike, who hates Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and all the orphans. Mike hates all the orphans. He's a terrible <laughs> person. You make me sound so bad, man. I, I literally never said any of this. But Balance okay. started this. Uh, war on war on Christmas. I just can't understand it from someone like you, Mike. Children, <laughs> <Think of> children. <laughs> hey, uh, in in other news, I had a whole bunch of um, uh, new Australian guys roll up over here, and they may or may not have been my students back in the day. And wow, which all of a sudden you feel old, right? But also, you know, had a whole like bunch of guys sitting around having coffees yesterday, talking and telling stories and remembering getting to know each other. And, and they were all sort of like guys who were around while Annie was getting born and going through stuff. So they sort of know my backstory. It's, it was really nice. Too nice to share with you two blokes anyway. <laughs> no, that's cool, man. It's always good to go back and you see like the progression, like you remember where they were and then years pass and then you kind of meet up and you're kind of like, you know, hopefully it's, it's a successful story and you hear that like these guys are thriving and going through it, um, which I'm sure they were if they had you as an instructor. There you go. Teaching them. I'm sure they're just the best pilots and everything else. Teach them how to, that your, your comb goes in your left pocket. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you comb with your left hand, you drink with your right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, like a good weekend, you know, catch up, had some guys around the, 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 serve up some coffees for them and you know welcome them to the community here so what are we talking about today Raf? you had a couple of good questions we picked a couple of good questions um i just thought they were thought provoking and figured it'd be worth kind of chewing about it and i just thought they're i mean it'd be a good question between all of us but i also thought uh, the listeners could kind of contemplate their own answer and maybe start a dialogue with somebody else and that's why i kind of uh suggested them if you will and so so where did you get the first one raf you want to tell us maybe where it came from and then and then uh drop it on us yeah i was just thinking about uh i guess should we just title should we just say what the first question is that uh i brought up yeah. um so it's have you ever witnessed a miracle and i was just kind of thinking about my brother and that's kind of how the um the question materialized so I've actually witnessed two miracles. Um, one was the birth of my brother. Well, I, let me retract that statement. After he was born, he contracted meningitis and was pretty sick. He spent you know, upwards of six to eight months in the hospital. And the prognosis from the very beginning was, you know, it was very bleak to say, I mean, that was the best prognosis. Um, I remember standing in the room countless of times with specialists from neurologists to every specialty you can think of. Uh, telling my parents that he wasn't going to make it, you know, that he just, it was just a matter of time. And I mean, he's 32, 33 years old now. So, um, 
just just the fact that I in that window of six to eight months, just what the love of uh, of a mother can do, right? And on top of and on top of science, I mean, the doctors work diligently to do everything they can, but a lot of it was experimental because he had a lot of uh, cerebral damage uh, from the pressure that was built up from the uh, cer- uh, cerebral meningitis. So that was the that's kind of how that question was framed, and I was like, oh, let me just you know see if you guys have ever witnessed anything similar. Uh, and then there's a second moment where I was in Afghanistan where the helicopter was kind of doing something that I really don't think it should have been doing. Um, and I can cover that after you guys talk about your miracle, but um, essentially, you know, the rotor system was indicating less than optimal and it was still climbing over a cliff. Uh, so it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty amazing thing to watch. Do you want to um, just your brother, Raf? So how old, how old were you? You know, like where were you at when you were taking this stuff in, you know, like this is a lot, a lot to see a, a baby brother getting born and going through really serious medical stuff. Sure. I was about um, just rough, just rough math here. Just Kentucky Wenders. I think it was about 10, 10 or 12 years old. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I was 10 or 12 years old. Um, and like I said, my, my brother was born normal. And he was about six months old when he contracted meningitis and it was back, uh, it was, I think it was bacterial meningitis and it, it basically eventually started causing really bad swelling in his brain, started having seizures, started having like really high fevers. It was, um, misdiagnosed probably for the first handful of ER visits that my parents took him to. Um, and it wasn't until he was kind of, I think it was a specialist in the hospital in Ventura that kind of caught what was going on and saw this trend. And he was airlifted to the lost. You talk about angels. We we're just talking about uh, angels in this world. Um, but yeah, some of these specialists working with him. Was, needless to say, they they medevaced him to uh, the Los Angeles Children's Hospital, which is you know specializes with obviously kids in like really really severe states of health. Uh, that's where he was. I mean, that's where he lived for six months. I'm talking peg tubes and eating tubes and you know everything you can think of man it was uh, it was a pretty scary time but again i know it was my mom who did not leave aside i mean literally did not leave aside i didn't see her for 6 months except for the weekends when my dad would come in with a change of clothing money you know that sort of thing uh he'd wow. corral us all into the station wagon and we'd drive over to los angeles to visit her and my brother his name is we call him junior after my dad but yeah, we would we would drive down there and spend the whole week in there, um, and we did this for six to eight months. And your, your we, mom, you know, lived at the hospital. Raph did not leave. She didn't. She never left a side. <sighs> wow, dude, that is amazing. Yeah, pretty extraordinary. And the initial prognosis. So, you know, we don't need to get all the detail, but meningitis for a six-month-old baby. I'm assuming that there's a fairly high fatality rate. So to give kind of a, a morbid picture, there was ten, about 10 or nine kids in his ward specifically, and five passed away while we were there. And it was, it was pretty heart-wrenching because you start to become close to the families, obviously. You start to know them, you know, you're all there kind of for the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it was, I'll tell you, man, you, you talk about a dark moment when you're sitting there with your with your sibling or your loved one and you hear the code go off just down the hallway and you, you know, what's happening. I mean, it's, and it's one of those awkward moments where 
you know, as a human being, you want to support them, but at the same time, it's hard to make eye contact because, you know, your, your loved one is still, still fighting, so to speak. It was, it was a tough moment, man. It really was. It was a, and the best way I could describe it is it was a miracle. And I, but I also know that it was a lot of my mom, constant prayer, just showing him love and affection with the little that she could do. Obviously she's not a doctor, but you know, just tending to him as a mother, just letting him know that he's not alone. I think, honestly, I think that in itself was what kept his, uh, his will to survive. Such a big deal. It's awesome. like all, I, I, the story really resonates with me, Ralph. You know, you my, my story about uh, Annie and, and my witnessing the miracle was actually Annie's delivery that, um, a baby that small could survive the delivery. And it was, it was a pretty horrendous uh, experience to go through. At 22 weeks, we'd, Cherry's waters had broken and uh, she'd been hospitalized. She wasn't allowed to leave and was in a high risk maternity ward. And uh, she had a series of uh, infections. Once the membranes rupture, like that amniotic fluid is designed to grow life and so any sort of bacteria or anything that gets in there just can go rampant. And uh, we had a first worry after a day or two after she'd been hospitalized where her temperature started to spike and a heart rate and all of the measures were all heading out of the green into the sort of the, the yellow towards the red. And they were all like, the baby's going to come now. And we knew that if, uh, if Annie didn't make it into the 23rd week, that that was just going to be the end of it. And so we had massive stress as the nurse sort of ran from the room to get the team of doctors and tears. And, uh, and I just was like, we need to flip this, this negative energy in the room was so, so strong. The fear and the, the specter of uh, death was there. And we just did these sort of like a meditative talk through about uh, the spirit and the energy and the, the love. And uh, like, two minutes both of us looked at each other and cherry started laughing and we both just felt this uplifting energy and the nurses and they all came back in and all of her heart like her blood pressure and heart rate and everything was back in the green all this stuff that you couldn't control was all back to normal and they sort of thought that must have had a, a false initial reading anyway this happened this happened uh three times that week where we just flip the situation around and uh, talk about the, the flow of that life energy through the body and the spirit. And cause we'd already named Danny at the 20 week scan. So we knew we had a little baby girl. And so we got through the, the seven days and on the seventh day I'd gone home and uh, my brother had flown over from, from Melbourne, which is sort of four hour flight. And I'd missed his bucks party that I'd organized. And this is all sort of right in the middle of him getting married. And my best mate, uh, Dalla, was, uh, had gone and picked him up from the airport and surprised me and just sort of rolled over to the house late at night. And I was there reading as I was like reading every night when I'd get kicked out of the ward, go home and read a bunch of medical stuff. And these two idiots sort of came in and surprised me. And next thing, my brother's on all fours in the ground recreating scenes from the bucks party and we're all laughing and, you know, picturing my brother dragging an engine, like a, a car engine with a chain down a beach, more just like Guantanamo Bay prisoner. That's what, all, that's what all of our mates did to him, which I'd organized. It was, 
laughter and happiness. And uh, then my phone rang and it was a hospital saying she's gone into labor. And just that specter of death came again. And we sort of piled into the car and drove down to the hospital. And so my brother and my best mate were with me. And uh, we were with uh, Cherry and my brothers and they're waiting in the corridor and the doctors are sort of looking at me and I'm looking around and I'm like, where's the neonatal unit? Like, where's the, where's the crib? And they were like, seven days ago, you signed do not resuscitate. Mm. And uh, it was like the first day in that state of horror and shock, they explained the protocols at the hospital and told me that there was no chance at 22 weeks. And I was like, but we're in the 23rd week now. And like they never revisit that initial decision. It's just the paper's been signed. And so in the middle of the labor, the doctor ran out of the room and ran to the neonatal unit. Like we're talking like 2 a.m. And two of these doctors had to like leave all the other babies down there and run up through the hospital. And they were in the room with us putting the neonatal unit together, like attaching the oxygen and getting the warmer going. And like a pre-flight, you know, it takes takes a little it takes a minute to get that thing going and cherry sort of didn't really know what was going on and i was trying to block her view from it because it was pretty stressful and anyway then uh it was literally the thing got turned on and annie was fully delivered and she was 570 grams which is just over a pound and she was dark purple and didn't look it did not look good looked like a little baby bird and this uh, German doctor got the tubes down her lungs and he was manually controlling the flow with his finger on a hole, like just like a total old school. And he had a stethoscope on her chest and his eyes were shut. And he just adjusted the, the oxygen flow into her lungs until she started breathing and her heart rate recovered. And then they got the computer over and set up the ventilator and she survived the birth. And I, know, I really experienced a miracle and it never should have happened. And it was, was not gonna happen from the start of that 22nd week, day one where the waters broke for Cherry when she was at work and she didn't know what was going on, just literally took a bus to the hospital and she didn't leave for seven days. And on the seventh day, well, she didn't leave for a lot longer than that, but to make it to the seventh day while the, her body was in this state and things were happening and an infection was setting in. And, you know, they were telling me that you're in danger of losing the mother with one of these infections. And then to go through the actual construction of the neonatal unit in the room during the labor and to watch this German doctor flow oxygen into a tiny baby, like it's the size of a water bottle. And for her to survive that first, for her to draw a breath and have a heartbeat and to survive that first minute was a miracle. And I, like, I know it, mm. my brother was in, my brother was in the corridor. And so when uh, they then got the baby ready and to go down to the neonatal, you know, I went down with my brother and my friend Dallas sat with Cherry. So she wasn't left alone. You can imagine like there's no one or everyone went with the baby, like the nurses, the whole team. And then my brother went down with me to the neonatal unit and he sat with the baby, Annie. 
and I went back up. So Annie wasn't left on her own. It was just like these two, the two, these two rough gorillas who had, had just, it all just came together. There was no planning. No one knew this was going to happen. I went back up and Dada had been sitting with my wife, holding her hand and comforting her because it was mega stress. And uh, like five, six hours later, we all left the hospital and went home and I stood in my bedroom and I really experienced the presence of God. And it was a beautiful moment mm. and sort of had an hour of sleep and then went back to the hospital and the whole cycle started. So, and there was many other times after that, but that was definitely something that shouldn't have happened. She never should have made it through those seven days and she definitely shouldn't have survived the birth. I don't know what else to say, Melon, dude. <laughs> like just listening to you and then sitting here watching you on the screen, just like telling the story. I mean, the, the, the amount of detail is amazing. Um, <clears throat> just, just listening to both of you guys with these stories. I, I, I'll tell you for me, it's, it, it's a miracle. Like, like no shit. <laughs> having guys having like people like you that are in my life and like being able to even talk about these things with clarity and humility and uh just honestly be open to all that and then like to have the personal experience to i haven't met raf's brother um but i've met annie when she's playing piano and rocking out in the living room and just something that is a godsend for sure um that is a that is the definition of a miracle and you're absolutely right uh, it's, it's it's a beautiful thing man thanks thanks for sharing with all that for both of you guys uh so so for me if i can jump in um it there, there's a lot of different things you know i've talked about miracles and you know sometimes i don't think i should have i don't think i should have made it through a lot of times uh, but i don't want to talk about that i want to talk about myself um I want to talk about a friend of mine who I've been following for a, a couple of years. Um, his name is John Grant. Um, he was a, uh, he's a, he's a, he was a Navy SEAL. Um, knew him when I first came in, like around, um, he went to Fort Bragg to the 18 Delta medical course, which is special operations medicine. And uh, he was down there training for that. And he was out with a couple guys and was in a really bad SUV uh, accident with the vehicle rolling over multiple times. Um, John sustained really bad brain damage. And uh, he was basically in a coma for a few months. Um, they thought he was brain dead. Um, it wasn't looking good. He was newly married um, to his wife, Laura. And it was just, you know, I can't even imagine where you start with all of that. Um, just, just the, the, this, this story is could take literally all day, but if you go up and look up Johnny and Laura Grant on Facebook, they're all over the internet. Now, Laura has taken it upon herself to rehabilitate John and have literally done every step of the way for years. Okay. Years, uh, through rehabilitation and, um, John has literally had to relearn how to live his entire life from walking to eating, to talking, to singing, to um, sitting upright, to have muscle movement. A lot of the stuff that Tony has talked about, 
and Laura has been there every step of the way. Um, hyperbaric chambers, she lays in there with him while he's sleeping. Um, laser treatment, experimental stuff, experimental sweat treatment, virtual reality uh, systems to retrain him on how to do things. Um, it's, it's just one of those, those stories where it's just like, it, it, you can't believe that John's even still alive for one, but just to go over and uh, to see the dedication that he gets up every single day and is fighting <laughs> to get out of bed or in his wheelchair and he's smiling all the time, wears his Navy SEAL trident and his hat and he's just so proud. He just turned 39 the other day and uh, the dude is literally just unstoppable, man. But he's he's literally the definition of another miracle and, uh, you know, I, I've... I'm honored to even know him and have served with him. Uh, so I just want to share that. But if you guys get time, look up Johnny and Laura Grant and uh, just an amazing story. That, that's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Just for the, for the listeners, Mike was just holding up a video, I think off Facebook and it was, was that Johnny and his wife? Yeah, it was. So they were doing like, hand drills like a rehab process and they're both they're both laughing and you can just see the love between the two of them and when they finish this hand drill they give each other this big beautiful kiss so just like you can see obviously it's something that they've been working on for a long time but they've got a state of joy and uh love is present i'm gonna go look that up when we're as soon as we're done here yeah if anyone needs a boost, I tell you what, that video is pretty amazing. Yeah. Very strong family to say his, his, his brother uh, was also a Navy SEAL as well. And uh, he's been there supporting him with uh, that community uh, the whole time. I mean, it's, it's inspiring to see John, how far he's come and where he's continuing to, to go. I mean, it's, it's very inspiring. Kind of like Kenny has said, in the past and talking about rehabilitation with Dr. Tony and those last two episodes it really wrapped into it and like combined both of those. And like, here's John, here's Johnny doing his thing, man. It's, it's, it's a miracle. A relationship like that is a miracle as well. You know, yeah. like to have to be new, a newlywed couple and to have a blow like that <clears throat> and, to, and to come through it. And no doubt there's, a lot of hard times for both of them, but to see that, uh, see that love between the two of them is really beautiful, man. I really appreciate you showing that. Yeah, the world it should be shared with the world, and it it is. So well, what a <laughs> I didn't know we were going to go here. I did not plan. <laughs> I did not plan to talk about the birth of my baby. <laughs> so, Raf. Raph, uh, so three medical miracles, really, for the three of us with a family tie-in. So birth of uh, Miguel Jr. and Annie and uh, John and Johnny and Laura Grant. What a great way to start an episode. So did you want to did you want to circle back to the helicopter issue incident there, Raph? Do you want to fill us in on that one? Yeah, I could. I just uh, I'll just keep it small because we we have some other questions we want to talk about but it was basically uh there was troops in contact we we're trying to get them out of there uh you know getting shot at from a lot of directions and obviously the the uh 
I'm not one of those guys with nerves of steel. I was absolutely petrified. <laughs> I thought it was the end of my cruise. So I thought for sure we were going to see the end of days there. But um, I just remember on the, on the way out, uh, the only way at the time, just because of the way everything was laid out, was for us to climb over this pretty significant cliff. And, uh, you know, when you're overwhelmed with a lot and there's a lot going on, um, flying, even though it's, you know, comes naturally, uh, still is very technical. And I kept drooping the rotor, meaning I kept pulling more collective, more power than the helicopter could give. And if you keep doing that, eventually the rotor starts to droop and the rotor is what creates that lift. Um, and I just remember specifically a couple times, uh, I kept pulling more collective than I needed to. And the rotor system kept drooping to the point where it started yelling, saying, you know, stop pulling power. I can't provide anymore. But what, more importantly, what happens is um, the rotor starts to slow down and you start stop to produce lift. While this is happening, the helicopter is actually climbing and it's climbing over a cliff. Um, so I just, I mean, to this day, I can't explain it. I was a maintenance test pilot. I know the way the rotor system works. I mean, down to down to a detail. So I just think somebody was looking out for us that day. I think, like you said, I felt God's presence. Um, you know, I kind of held it together during that tick, but you know, it wasn't until later on that night that I kind of broke down because I knew that something significant had occurred. So, but uh, yeah, I'll just keep it as generalized as possible. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, that's that's pretty much what it was. It was couple minutes where I didn't understand why, you know, I kept pulling the guts out of it and yet it was still climbing when it theoretically should be descending or <laughs> at a minimum, you know, hitting that, the side of that mountain. Someone's always there to lift you up when you need it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was pretty extraordinary. Um, and then on to the next question, if you guys want to do that. Yeah, hey, man. Cool. Um, it's, uh, well, actually we, we talked about a couple, uh, I would say the next one is what's the most uplifting thing you've heard or seen, uh, recently, uh, just because we know we've been inundated with a lot of negativity in the news feeds and just the world in general. So Melon, I'll give it to you. Wow. I love these, um, unbriefed questions. So yet yesterday, um, day off here. In the morning, I had a, uh, a mate over, an American mate, teaches at a uh, university over here. He's very much not your short back and sides uh, military guy. And I know uh, Raf knows him, my, my buddy, Justin Abel, out of Montana and uh, Washington State. Actually, Spokane, he spent a lot of time there as a, as a teenager, I think. He, for the record, he knows Volstead Act. <laughs> we all know the Volstead Act, Raf. Um, so he was over and, uh, we were just chilling and having coffee and talking and, you know, the sort of, as we do, and Annie had gone down to, uh, where Cherry's got the music all set up and all the musical instruments and stuff. And so Justin and I walked down and we walked into the middle of Annie smashing out Led Zeppelin cashmere. Another miracle. In, in an enclosed space with like a, a proper, <laughs> a proper like band stereo speaker system. And she's, you know, dancing around. She can't really see very well. <laughs> she's swinging this rigging microphone stick around and, 
rocking out to an audience of one, just her mum there. And it's just, she has so much joy, that girl. And that was, that was hugely uplifting. It just, I just stood in the doorway and I was like, man, I cannot believe how happy this child is. Wailing on it. And never gets it. And never gets it. Yeah, it was like the tail end of like three hours in there. So mm. I, just, I just sat and watched maybe like an hour of a sort of like Pink Floyd, bit of Metallica, Black Sabbath and uh, Queen. But yeah, Led Zeppelin was when I walked in, Cashmere, Led Zeppelin. If you're looking for a tune today, get on your uh, YouTube or Apple or Spotify or whatever in Cashmere. It's quite a long song. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just the joy. This She danced around in her black clothes and she's got silver chains hanging over her because she wants to be a rocker. <laughs> uh, so funny. Yeah. Happy days. That was my, up, that was my uplifting <laughs> moment. There's a child who doesn't care about coronavirus. She's bloody rocking it. <laughs> I love that. Um, How about you, Mike? About you? Uh, so for me, uh, I would say happened, what, two, three nights ago. Uh, was out conducting training. It was at nighttime. Like I said, here on the East Coast, it's very cold. Um, it was at nighttime. I think the air temp was about 37. Uh, it was about to start snowing. Is uh, just starting to flurry a little bit actually. And we were out in the ocean at night uh, training. And uh, one of the guys, um, there was a surf zone. It was about four foot coming in, like rolling heavy at night with gear on. Like you get your ass handed to you. Like I don't care who you are. If you don't do it right, like you get, you'll get rolled up at night and you can't see anything and you can't breathe. Um, it's, it's pretty. It's, it's hard. Uh, one of the guys, uh, he was wearing a dry suit, uh, which keeps you dry. So everybody knows there's a neck seal and around your wrists and it's kind of like a big old onesie. Um, so it's not like a wetsuit. Um, well, he got rolled up pretty good and had a tear uh, in his dry suit high around the neck area. So his whole dry suit flooded with ice water and uh, was out was out in the water. And I didn't know about it for maybe five, a little over five minutes. Okay. And uh, full, full gear on probably about 40, 50 pounds of stuff with a rucksack and everything else. And uh, he came in and uh, he's, he's very wobbly. Um, hypothermia was starting to set in. And uh, you know, me is like kind of running it. I, I'm like doing evaluation. I'm like calling, calling the uh, medic to come over, take a peek at him. And, uh, and I was like, Hey man, I, I don't think you're doing too well. I'm going to pull you from training and like shaking. He was barely shaking, which is like when you stop shaking is when you really need to worry. And he just like looked up at me and he's just like, dude, my guys are still out there doing it. He's like, just like, let me do a couple push-ups, and I'm going right back in. And <laughs> it, 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 just hearing him and like the look in his eyes and, and, and his face now for training, it's just like, look, man, don't, push to kill yourself or like really get messed up so you can fix yourself and get back into training. Right. So like, that's where my mindset, um, but just listening to him and, and his, like his eyes, the way he looked at me and said it was just, uh, it just like put a shot, shot of fire into me. And like the air wasn't cold anymore. The water who gives a shit. Um, it was just so awesome. He was a younger guy too, but um, you know, he just, he, he wasn't even thinking about himself. 
he was just like, I'm out here to do stuff with my boys and, and I need to take care of it. And uh, that was just <laughs> exactly what he said, uplifting. Like, I kind of forget sometimes where I'm at and who I'm, who I'm around and who like a daily basis, like this is normal most of the time. And some of this stuff sounds like superhero stuff, but literally it's a Monday for me. And, uh, and I don't mean that in a cocky way. It's just like, it's, it's, it's where you are. It's, it's your reality. It's where you work. And I know you guys have been there. I mean, you've been around great freaking pilots or people in the military, you know, it's just like, nah, that's, that's so-and-so dude, no big deal. So this stuff's very normal, but things like that, that pop out, man, it really makes me stop and just go, you know, the, the, the air, the air pumping and, you know, like the fist pumping in the air type thing. And it's just like, dude, I'm, I'm freaking proud to be here. You know, you stand up a little taller, chest comes out, you know, you clench your fists and you're just like, yeah, dude, let's, let's get some, you know, you just wish it wasn't training and it was actually bad guys that you could just go take it out on at the moment, you know, but I literally, I just pictured you standing there with this dude, you know, motivating you and Annie's in the background, just singing raining blood from air, <laughs> like just, <laughs> that would have been that would have capped it off man that would have been yeah. absolutely perfect uh, how good is it though when you have people like that around you you know that old saying of like you're that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with yeah you know like that's and when you've when you've got people like that in your group you know like like i get a lot out of these conversations with you two idiots you know but like if you can sort of if you're having a hard time maybe have a look at the five people you spending all your time with and maybe maybe rotate someone onto the bench and bring in someone who's willing to do push-ups and get back into the icy water i'll give you a bit be a shot of what you need yeah yeah man i'll tell you the guys i work with on a daily basis if i was to tell those guys hey man go sit on the bench and let somebody else come in and do it like they literally look at you and be like go ahead and try it and find someone better and they would just get angry and they would go right back out and, and do it even harder because you doubted them for one second. <laughs> like, awesome. It's very, what I meant, what I meant there though, Mike was like, if, if listeners out there are having a bit of a hard time or maybe their, their energy states low or they've, they're consistently feeling down. I mean, just maybe for people to have a look at their circle, their own circle and just think, are there people here who are just incurably negative that you could probably give yourself a break from and try and rotate someone into your life. Who's got that energy that you need, you know, and just, just to think about it, like you don't need to have default friends. You can have like intention and you can put people in your life who bring stuff to you, you know, that you maybe you need in a moment. Maybe you need that guy on the ground doing pushups in a, <laughs> a dry suit that's full of freezing water. Maybe you need that guy in your life for a bit of a, a nitrous boost. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you, man, I, if it was a real mission and I had that guy next to me and I know that that happened for real, I already know his attitude. It's unquestioned. And I don't need yeah. to look over and be like, are you good? Cause I already know because, it's, because of stuff like that. And that's a good feeling. Awesome. So how about you there, Tio? What's your uplifting experience? Was it the haircut dropping 15 pounds of hair? <laughs> you stood up out of the barber's chair and you're like, wow, I'm uplifted. Actually it was a, uh... That was part of it. I did feel a lot better. Um, He's no, trimmed I, a mullet. He's trimmed a significant mullet, people. Picture like 1986 ice hockey. And in Australia, the Australian oh, rules footballers yeah. back in the 80s. That's what that's what Raf was looking like. And he's sitting there in like a long sleeve white shirt. And you can actually see his ears and stuff. It's amazing. 
Well, it's like I said, I'm going for the George Michael. I don't know if that's exactly a mullet. Well, the the horrendous '80s, you know, Tijuana mullet is gone. Oh, got, <laughs> we can see short back and sides again. <laughs> so, is that the uplifting moment? Yeah, we can call it that. Sure. <laughs> Actually, it's um, I was watching a the Joe Rogan podcast, and he had this guest on there. Um, his name is Justin Wren. And this guy's amazing. I mean, I just, I couldn't, I just, his story just blows me away. Um, he was bullied as a child. I mean, this, he's a giant now, and he's been fighting in the MMA professionally since 2006. He was fought under Bellator, and then he fought in the UFC. But more importantly, though, he, fought, he has an organization called Fight for the Forgotten, where he basically has brought investors and other like-minded people to uh, invest in the community of pygmies. And it just, I mean, I loved everything about that, not just the podcast, but his story. Cause I started diving into what he's been doing and he's gotten malaria like three or four times. I mean, he's really put himself out there. He's just such a good human being. And it's just, like I said, in the, cause I was just being bombarded. I, whatever day that I, I think it was about a week ago, but um yeah, I've just been you know, all this negativity that's just coming at us with the impeachment trials and just the coronavirus and just everything. And just it was such a breath of fresh air to just see someone who's actually living life and really giving back. And, you know, I mean, this guy, when he passes, when he takes his last breath, I mean, I hope he's the proudest man alive because he's done so much for humanity and he's been so selfless. And it's just it was uplifting. It was motivating. I was just like, God, that's just uh, it's just something to shoot for. Right. To just. Do something greater than yourself. I really like the idea of just switching off the news and searching out for stories like that and just, you know, like curating the information that's coming in for a little while, you know, if you're getting overloaded. Because I've got to say, there's just been, I'm not even an American, but we've just been getting so much of your politics rammed down our throats and all these sensible podcasts I normally listen to have been overwhelmed with it. And it's just, you know, coronavirus. It's like, Maybe turn all that stuff off and go and find some real people doing stuff like that. Because I, I like I've also heard I've not listened to that particular podcast, but I know that I know that story, the fight for the forgotten, and he's actually out there doing it. He's really out there sleeping in in a tent. Yeah, which is why he had malaria. I think three or four times, yeah. um, and damn near. I think he almost died on the second one, maybe the third one. I mean, it's and he's got like a parasite infection that he's been battling for years but i mean he just doesn't quit he keeps going back because that's where his love is i mean it's just that's just extraordinary man and that's what um it's just empowering as a human being right because we're all made of the same dna but uh yeah it's it it was absolutely uplifting to listen to his story i mean and anyone listening please go and please see what i'm talking about and uh, i think that it would move you to hopefully donate a little bit of money or time or whatever it is that you can donate yeah Find a reason to be find find an excuse to win. Find find one to be positive for once instead of pointing the finger and you know blaming everything else or whatever why everything sucks. It's just like yeah okay old story very old. Like I don't want to get all fired up about that whole topic, but like find find an excuse to be happy. Like it's your choice, man. Like at the end of the day, so that's good. Yeah, maybe maybe part of that is finding a charity that you believe in and making a small donation and getting the attention off yourself it might actually be part of it you know feel yeah. like you've done something positive for something you believe in 
Yeah. So just to say again, Ralph, what's the name of the, the full name of that charity? Is it the Fight for the Forgotten? It's Fight for the Forgotten. Yeah. So if you Google Fight for the Forgotten, Justin Wren, it'll it'll uh, populate out automatically. It'll be the first thing that'll pop up. And it's the pygmies that are Uganda, um, specifically that he had initially kind of befriended and started living in the villages with them and, you know, realized that there was something worthy there. And um, just an extraordinary person. I mean, he's just, you know, and he himself has been through quite a bit. If you listen to his story, being bullied, being suicidal. I mean, he's really, really been through some gut-wrenching stuff. So, um, yeah, he's definitely a bright light and I hope he keeps doing amazing things because I'm definitely a fan of his work. So um, before we uh, run a little long, um, there's one more question that was kind of asked out by uh, just people just out there just responding and, and listening to the show. Um, one, her name's Jenna, and she uh, she asked the question, particularly uh, for you two guys being pilots. Um, I could talk a little bit too, because like I, I skydive and stuff, but uh, she wanted to know, do you have any tips on getting over the fear of flying? And if you have an example of kind of like what you guys did and how you did it. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think nearly everyone has a moment, probably before their first flight, somewhere through the pre-flight inspection, getting in a, a little aircraft with someone you don't really know. And then out you go and you're trusting in a, an Italian dude called Benulli who makes a little lift on the wing. Apparently little guy holds the wings up. My wife was really not a good flyer. She was like the fingernails in the arms the whole time. And I've had a few other friends and family who've had a real issue with flying. There are programs that they run at nearly every airport where they can take you out and they do a fear of flying programs and they take you over like an airliner and you do a pre-flight inspection with a technician and you get to see like there's four hydraulic systems, there's four independent engines. You get just a basic sense of how well engineered these things are. And they, they, they do in some places like simulator ex exposure. So you get to see what's going on in the flight station. And like I've had a, a, a cousin who really dealt with it and he was a pharmaceutical and medical sales guy. And he'd always have to fly from Australia to the U S or Europe and pretty debilitating fear. He'd be like, just so you know, Raph, he was getting like the SIG weather charts, well, like aviation pilot products. And he'd be like, oh, I'm supposed to go to Hawaii, but there's this tropical low. I'm like, dude, you are so, <laughs> so far beyond what you should be worried about. Because there's an expert up the front who's had, you know, maybe 10 years in the military and then 10 years in the airlines. And that's the captain and the co-pilots, you know, four or five years behind him and, the engineering of these things really, I think, reassures a lot of people when they actually understand what's going on. There's there's also a video, if anyone wants to look it up, of the 707, the very first four-engine jet uh, airliner that we all know. The final flight by the test pilot, you can see it on YouTube. He barrel rolls this thing. He does a full-up unbriefed. He had Boeing executives on board, and he was just like, he knew everything about this thing, and he does a barrel roll in it. And when they landed, they were like, do we sack him or do we promote him? <laughs> <laughs> but there's a video of an airliner doing a full barrel roll. And it's like, that's what they're actually capable of. Or if you see an air show video of what an airliner, you know, like with the chief test pilot at the 
controls or one of the big military transports, what they can actually do is extraordinary. So like a straight old transit from, you know, Melbourne to LA is really no problem for these things. And the training that the guys have in the flight station is absolute top quality. Have you got any other points there, Raf? You covered them all, mate. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, you just covered it all. So I, I can offer, so I'm, I'm not a pilot because if I did, I would, I would, I would sand dart it immediately. Um, and you'd have better hair. Yeah, whatever, dude. I'd wear a helmet. It's a qualification. It's a qualification. It's a standard. Let's call it what it is. It's a standard to get into the cockpit. You got to have a, a haircut like you and Melon. You both have comb overs. You need to look ridiculous. All right. So. I don't think you know what a comb over is. <laughs> comb over is when you have no hair in your head and you try to get a bit from the side and hide the patch. <laughs> Focus on the question. Okay. <laughs> All right. So. Growing up, I was scared to death of heights. There was a little bubble copter that would fly around like the, uh, it was Westmoreland County in Pennsylvania, but there was a fairground and you could pay 20 bucks to do like a five minute lap around and just, ooh, ah, you know, whatever. Um, my brother and my dad went to go get on. I was literally hugging his leg, crying because I didn't want to get on the thing because I was so scared to death. Um, I would, my legs would be like jackhammers and shaking, like whatever, I, I just did not like heights. Um, Getting into the job that I wanted to do, I also couldn't swim until I was 14, but that's separate. But we're just talking about fear and, and mental, the mental side of it and psyching yourself out. Ultimately, that's probably the worst thing that you're coming into. So first time I was going up when I was in jump school, I'm getting onto a plane. The plane is taking off for me to jump out of it, right? And all these all these sayings the instructors are putting in your head, you're just like, well, as soon as you jump out, you're already dead unless you do, unless you do something about it. And I'm just sitting there like that is that is terrible what to say to me. But you know they're they're up there laughing and you know. <laughs> so the whole time, all you can think about is like this door is going to open and I'm jumping, or you know just being in a plane that you know is just like doing something different than taking you from one place. But I'm going up at altitude and I'm in a a basically flying coffin with wings. You know all these different terms that you hear. I'm not trying to psych anybody out, but uh, honestly, it was just like I need to do this. Well, for two reasons, if I didn't, then I would have got dropped from training and that was the end of it. And it would have been a waste. Uh, but two, it was just like, I need to do this. I need to face my fear because I know where I want to go and who I want to be. And this is part of it. This is part of the journey. This is part of the challenge uh, is getting outside my own mind and my comfort and my comfort zone and, and doing it. And honestly, at that moment when the door opened and I was just up there, um, the guys like rallied around you. The instructors are like, Hey, lock eyes on me. You, you know what to do. Just count to three and we're going to go. And uh, honestly, as soon as I got in there, man, and, and there were like three, two, one, and I jumped out and I was just in free fall. It all went away. It wasn't what I thought it was anything like it. It was like falling in a windy picture. Anybody's jumped. Um, and the fear just left. And by the time I got to the ground, I was like, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad at all. Actually, I want to go right back up, you know, and uh, it was just going through it and facing it and having people there to help me because by myself, I was done. I, I wasn't jumping out, but seeing the encouragement, talking me through it, making me laugh in the moment, you know, just those little jabs and things. It, it really helped me. Um, and I knew that there were other people around me doing it, too. So that helped that I wasn't alone. And uh yeah. And then now, I mean, geez, I turn around. I'm a static line jump master. I'm a free fall jump master. I got 
209 jumps. Like I love jumping. Like it's not an issue. I still get nervous up there because it's not a natural thing to fall out of the plane 150 miles an hour at night. But uh, you know, um, you just gotta you just gotta face it. You get you gotta do it. And uh, I reckon there's a point in there that's really good, Mike. There's a really good uh, point in there about like surrounding yourself with professionals and then educating yourself. And if you can do those two things, you know, there's people who do these things that we fear, like the people, I know people maybe have fear of medical procedures and stuff like that. And you can just, you can educate yourself and you can do a bit of research into the background that these people have. And then you can trust that they're not dummies. You know, there are people who are doing this day in, day out for a living. And these are some of the most well-regulated. So there's like a rational sort of fear of this stuff that can become an irrational fear. And you can address some of that with logic and you can address some of that with exposure to you, to these sort of, the way that people are, you know, their manner, their attitude, their professionalism, and that can comfort some of the irrational fear. You realize how calm and controlled these people are. Anyway, I think we're sort of near the end here, guys. We don't want to keep you any longer. We really appreciate your time. We've had a couple of really good points here from, uh, some Raf brought up the question. So the first one, have you ever witnessed a miracle? And Raf birth of his brother Miguel and uh, the battle with meningitis and heard some beautiful stuff about his mum never leaving the hospital. And he also had a second time where a helicopter climbing out out of a, a hot LZ should not have been climbing and he was pulling more, uh, asking more power than the engine had to give and somehow he did continue to climb. For me, there was a birth of my daughter, which was quite a an emotional story and I'm sort of surprised that that came out. But anyway, that was, that was the story for me. Definitely. I witnessed a miracle that day. And uh, Mike with his buddy, Johnny and Laura Grant, a Navy SEAL special ops uh, medicine with brain damage and SUV rollover and just working through that trauma together in the rehab process. A beautiful thing. And I'm going to go look them up uh, as soon as we're done here. And then the most uplifting thing. And there was a, uh, Mike with, I'm picturing a guy in fully with a dry suit full of freezing water doing push-ups, and flame shooting out of his eyeballs. And that's the guy that I want to be spending some time with. Raf with uh, the fight for, for the forgotten. So sourcing a podcast or a story from someone who's really making a difference in the world and listening to that, put that in your head rather than some negativity. And for me, it was <laughs> seeing my daughter rock out to cashmere when I walked into the <laughs> into the clubhouse. Oh my God. And then just some stuff around addressing fear, you know, that you can probably educate yourself and uh, expose yourself in a controlled way to those fears and just sort of build up that resistance and understand where these fears come from. There's going to be a, a, a rational component and an irrational component. So anyway, great episode guys. Uh, we've had some amazing guests recently with uh, the real Kenny G and Dr. Tony and some, just some great uh, stories from those guys. And uh, we've got some questions coming in that we'd love to love to get more, send them on in. And uh, you got not your average Mike 77, not your average Raf and not your average Paul at gmail.com. Please leave reviews for us. It really does help uh, with the algorithms and so on. So over at Apple podcast is the main place, five star review with a bit of a, what you're getting out of it if you're getting anything out of it we'd love to to see that we really appreciate it and from all of us and to all of you stay focused stay safe and we'll see you next time